Hello. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Welcome, a very warm welcome to NYU Abu Dhabi in this very special week that leads up to our commencement uh, on next Monday, the first commencement in person in two years. And it is just so wonderful to be able to have all of you here. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted to welcome you here uh, for the second Climate Conversations panel in our new series. And this is a series of conversations about global warming and its harmful impacts on the environment, and especially what we might do about them. Last semester in this same series, we were joined virtually by an extraordinary group of thinkers and doers to examine the intersecting responsibilities that we have of combating climate change as well as the systemic inequalities around the world that make certain communities, historically marginalized communities often, more vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis than others. Today, we're delighted to welcome a similarly innovative group of expert panelists, who will be introduced by Antonios later, uh, to focus on water security, a a growing global and local challenge. The past two years, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, the past two years we have seen that climate change and its consequences have become a reality much, much more quickly than any scenario predicted. It's no longer something that we thought might happen around 2050. Climate change is an all-encompassing threat to all living things, to health, to agriculture, to fisheries, to the global economy, to peace and security, to cultural heritage, to justice, to the very ground that all of us, and especially millions of people, animals and plants in coastal areas, inhabit. Storms, droughts, wildfires, and receding shorelines are bleak signs of a possible future, a possible future, if we don't act now. Large regions of the world will gradually become uninhabitable because they will either be flooded or they will get too little water, too little fresh water from sky, stream or soil. And developing countries, we know that, are going to suffer disproportionately if we all wait for someone else to act. And I am very, very glad that this country with its visionary leadership has decided not to wait and is is really taking a leadership role with COP28 coming and with the net zero commitment for 2050 and many, many other uh, commitments for which we are so grateful. Today, we're going to look at climate change in relation to water. I am not a climate scientist or a climate policy maker, but I do know about water. If you were born in the Netherlands, as I was, And if you were delivered on a houseboat, as I was, and if you then spent your first seven years on a fearsome seashore with high waters frequently, as I did, you know about the paradox of water as soon as you have language. Let me talk about the paradox of water. 
if you grow up as I did in that way in my early years, you know that water is life. As humans and most other critters and plants cannot live without the fresh kind of it, rather than the salty. You know that because you hear your parents talking about how the sea is threatening the water. I, my parents really said that. The sea is threatening the water today. And at first you think that doesn't make any sense because you could very well see that the sea is, well, all water. And it has fishes and jellyfishes in it that seem to love it. I didn't love the jellyfishes, but you know, they loved it. So why would water be afraid of the sea? But before long, even as a young kid, you realize you cannot drink the salty kind. And you can see also with your own eyes that with every storm and high tide in that seashore, on that seashore, the salt water might drown out the kind you drink. And that waters your little houseboat terrace garden, which we had. And then by the time you start school, you figured out that the dunes and the dams and the dikes that you see everywhere that hold back the high tides can break and do sometimes break. And you see that when that happens, it's not just the drinking water that is gone, but a whole lot of people and animals too. I never saw that directly, but I heard about it, as I will say in a minute. So you learn the paradox. Water is life, and water is the portent of death if you do not watch out. Now in Holland, you don't actually have to live on a houseboat by the shore to learn that. You hear it when you are five or six and you shiver into your first government mandated swimming lesson. You have to take many swimming lessons and get diplomas from an early age. The required Dutch swimming program is truly a national treasure that has saved countless lives in a country where a third of the land lies below sea level and has for centuries, and where there is a ditch you can fall in, in every corner, or around every corner. So every Dutch child for generations back has learned to live with a healthy fear of the water, a healthy fear of drowning, flooding, and seawater infiltration into the water sources that we need for human and agricultural consumption. And so, while global warm, warming has unleashed many, many harms, my Dutch experience may explain why to me, sea level rising has always been its most truly existential thre threat to the human community and the community of living things. But that same Dutch experience of many years also tells me that we can, with the right political will and technological innovation, find solutions, and fight back together. Here is what every child of my generation, and I think still children today, also learned as we grew up. On February 1, 1953, about a decade before I was born, an unusually high springtide with the moon at its closest point to the Earth in its orbit around, uh, 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 around us. This unusually high springtide, like a once in a 10 years uh, height, 
combined with a hurricane, a hurricane force gale to raise the waters of the North Sea with such ferocious power that dikes and dunes were breached all along the country's long western and northwestern shoreline. The storm hit parts of Belgium and England as well. It was one of those once-in-a-generation events, if not once in a several centuries. The storm hit, hit those parts of Belgium and England, but no area was worse affected than the one you see here, the southwestern region of the Netherlands, known as the Delta region. Uh, an, an area of low-lying islands, those are all islands and peninsulas, uh, just south and southwest of Rotterdam. And that province, that old province, is appropriately called Zeeland, sea land. The hatched areas that you see there, all that hatching shows you the extent of the flooding and the concomitant devastation that was both immediate and of very long duration because of the seawater infiltration. Dutch citizens alive at the time woke up the next day to harrowing reports this from a very local town, not affected, just the closest town that they could start evacuating people to. They woke up the next day to harrowing reports of people and animals caught in the flooding, holding on to their roofs, if they still had them, and of a rescue effort that was immediate but hampered by the sustained bad weather and absence of any roads. Over the next few days, as bodies were swept back by the sea, the death tally rose to more than 1,835 people and more than 30,000 animals, just in this really relatively small, sparsely populated area of a country that at the time was about the size of the UAE, 10 million people. You see some of the rescue of people from the roof on the right there. And everywhere else you see, as you saw on the previous slide in this one, the shape of the land had disappeared. It was now truly sea land. I was born in the northernmost of those islands I just showed you, west of Rotterdam, southwest of Rotterdam. My parents had moved there seven years after the disaster in 1960. And I remember that when they and our neighbors there and our teachers would talk about it, voices would stick and tears would glisten or even just roll. It was so dramatic for the scope of that country, size of that country. And I also learned, as every Dutch kid did, not just in my little town, that the country had responded magnificently in unison to the plight of their fellow citizens, rescuing them and housing them for months and even sometimes years of recovery. And we also learned early on that the response was led by this woman, our Queen Juliana. Queen Juliana had gone to the affected zone as soon as her security detail allowed it. She tried the very afternoon of the first. There was no way of getting there. The whole country was, so much of the country was flooded even outside of that area. But she got there by plane and boat on the 2nd of February. As you can see, she wore rubber boots um, so she could reach and speak with her stricken citizens and console them wherever she went. No flyovers for her. No high heels or inappropriate fancy clothes. 
She didn't wear a lot of fancy clothes. She was not. She was a very salt of the earth queen, the queen of my youth. And she looked old to me in this image, this iconic image. And I later learned when I was older that she was just in this moment very weary and sad. Because in subsequent weeks, I saw pictures of how she kept going. She kept going to other places here and again. All over the country there were problems. And you see her here doing it over and over again. And she visited just about every affected province and town personally. It can't have been comfortable. It was February. It was cold. It was not good weather. And everyone was very sad and dislocated. She was only 45, really, and had become queen just five years earlier. But she knew what to do. Here you see her, indeed, in a much more youthful state, a few weeks Later, follow, visiting an evacuation center put up in the city of Beida. Leadership matters. I wouldn't have known to say it that way then, but one learns it. Leadership matters. Queen Juliana's example and her advocacy long after the crisis gave our constitutionally elected government a tailwind as it worked across the many Dutch political parties. We have a lot of political parties. The Dutch love to talk many Dutch political parties, and help them come up with a massive public investment scheme called the Delta Works, or the Delta Plan. It was conceived between 1953 and 1957, and then funded by law in 1958, although they got going with the building immediately. And this Delta Plan became, these Delta Works are an intricate, huge, extensive system of locks, dams, bridges, and storm surge barriers that fortify and connect the shorelines of Zeeland and the islands and the adjacent areas in the Netherlands that exposed so much of the land to the sea. You could see that in the map with all these islands and peninsulas. And this fortif these fortifications enabled the partial or even complete closure of these very wide waterways that exposed so much of the land to the sea. Over time, the exposed shoreline was reduced by at least 700 kilometers, cutting down on the cost of dike additions, renewals and replacements that were always necessary. It's not a system of dikes, it's a system of dams, bridges, locks and, and uh, surge barriers. And that it prevented the cost of all these new, constantly this dike renewal, which is a big topic in Holland always, uh, that was a good thing because the whole plan ended up costing four or five times more than the 3.3 billion guilders, an immense sum for the Netherlands, 20% of GDP in 1958. It, it ended up closer to 15. And it took 15 more years to complete than the 25 anticipated. Now, you may know some Dutch people, but for any other project than this one, such huge overruns of cost and time would have been totally unacceptable to the cost-conscious Dutch. The Dutch are, you know, a little parsimonious, actually, you might say. They're very efficient. Not so for this national project. People went along with it. And, and all the way until it was at last declared complete in 1997, a very joyous day, I remember. Now, a major reason for the overruns is important to today's conversation because it shows the adaptability of the Dutch in the face of these enormous challenges. They had to redirect the largest single one 
of the storm surge barriers across the enormous expanse of the Overschelde. I'll just quickly go back to the map to show you where it is. So you can have a sense of what all, all this has been connected by the Delta Plan. All these, all these different islands. Here's Belgium. Here's the Netherlands. Everywhere where you see water was connected. I was born there. Um, and the largest of the spans is here. And it goes across around nine kilometers. Now, they knew they had to do something about it because it was one of the worst affected areas and it kept being very dangerous. And here is what they built. Here's what they built. But it is not what had been planned. They had in fact begun to build a straight up dam that would have turned this broad waterway into a lake by, build, you know, by leave, shutting out all the water. But by the 1970s, when they got around to building that dam, environmental consciousness had truly begun to reach most Dutch citizens and schools. And the country realized that we were about to kill off one of the most flourishing and diverse marine ecosystems in the country and in all Northwestern Europe. It's truly special. And so the water engineers got back to work, deconstructed what had begun to be built and designed a state-of-the-art open storm surge barrier of a kind that did not exist yet. Here you see it in action during a storm. It le lets water in all the time, really, but it can be closed entirely or section by section along these caissons automatically as certain litmus conditions of sea and atmosphere are reached that lead to a prediction of a surge of three meters or higher. And at nine kilometers long, to this day, this is the longest storm surge barrier and the most innovative, certainly at the time, in the world. Now, the Dutch political parties got together again and the long-suffering taxpayers once again ponied up for a united cause in, in now against the sea, but also for the sea. The paradox again. The Dutch understanding of the water paradox preserved a magnificent natural and fisheries monument, and it was the right call. This barrier has been closed 28 times since 1986, when it became functional. Less than once per year. I'm sure the number is going to go up, but still it's not very frequent, even now. And I think it could be argued that with the enormous extra cost that it brought, it has paid for itself many times over in terms of innovation and technology development, not just in the preservation of tourism and seafood industries, which was a very important argument for redoing the design. But these technology and innovation gains have made Dutch water engineers, everyone here knows that very well in the UAE, the first responders and the greatest storm surge builders and dredgers of the world. And by the time the Delta Plan was declared completed, I too understood something about my childhood that had always baffled me a little bit. I understood why my father, a proud engineer from an engineering family, had taken us kids and my mom on outings to see the building of the great Delta Works year after year after year after weekend after weekend. In my memory, we went a thousand times. It was probably 10 times, but we went often. And I remember being carsick and seeing the dams under construction for a few hours and how that experience felt both 
extremely boring. And on the other hand, historic, because my father cared so much about it and my father and mother could under explain why it mattered. So when the time came to see the project closed and declared, I had come to see that our family had essentially witnessed the building of our Colosseum. So I hope that my story gives you some hope, as it does me, that common cause can yet be made in what is a transborder global fight for our planet, which is after all in the first place a fight for our humanness. And I hope also that my example shows that leadership matters and that education matters. And on that note, I am very grateful to hand over the mic to Antonios Fouloudis, who embodies these values of leadership and education for a vital cause for which we need to pull together. And he does so with a good dose of energy and enthusiasm thrown in. He is our inaugural director of sustainability and stewardship. And he is really the one who has brought you these wonderful speakers and this magnificent series. Enjoy your evening. Thank you very much, Mariette, for this amazing story and for sharing the, uh, uh, the amazing story of Netherlands and how the Delta Plan was uh, back in the day perceived and how adaptation in Netherlands uh, over the years and leadership has created um, that mechanism protecting Netherlands over the years from flooding and so on. It's definitely a great example from which we can learn here in the UAE and about how we can adapt over the next decades. Um, so, uh, Bing, thank you, uh, Marit, again for your great remarks and great story. And uh, Your Excellencies, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you uh, for joining us today um, in this uh, panel discussion about water security. Uh, and also uh, thank you everyone online via Zoom that they are uh, attending today's uh, uh, discussion, uh, which is broadcasted via Zoom. Um, I want to uh, thank the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for helping us organizing today's event. Um, and uh, also a hearty welcome to uh, our distinguished, distinguished panelists today. Uh, it's my privilege and pleasure to introduce you, uh, to introduce them before they engage in this important climate conversation on water security. I'll, I'll start with uh, Luke Sumner, uh, right next to me. Luke uh, is the Director of Integrated Planning at the Emirates Water and Electricity Company where he's responsible for planning future power and water requirements for the Emirates of Abu Dhabi. Luke uh, joined EGWEC in uh, late 2020 from the Australian energy market operator, where he had undertaken a very similar uh, role. Uh, with a background in energy market modeling, gas and water trading, Luke's primary professional interest is supporting decarbonization in Abu Dhabi and using his skills uh, platforms and methodologies we develop these days to lead the region towards net zero. Luke uh, holds an MA from Oxford University and is married with two children. Welcome, Luke. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, next, Luke is Sophia Bernklud. Um, Sophia is uh, a former trade advisor at the Swedish Trade and Invest Council under the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Swedish uh, uh, Industry. In her former role as a trade advisor, she helped more than 50 companies to expand internationally and grow sales in South Asia and the United States. She was the project, uh, project lead for water, consumer, 
and space industries in South Asia, including India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal and Bhutan, among other countries, and often involved in many other global projects. Sofia has a strong profile in international expansion, market strategies, public affairs, and multi-stakeholder relationship uh, management. Sofia has also supported the operation, operationalization excuse me, of MOUs on government and company level with strategic focus uh, sectors to facilitate cross-border partnerships. Sofia holds a master's degree in supply chain management from Copenhagen Business School in Denmark and a bachelor's degree in strategic management from Lund University in Sweden. She has uh, more than 10 years of international experience from Europe, United States, Middle East and South Asia. And she currently holds a key role as a business development manager at Source Global in the Middle East and Africa. Source Global is an American company uh, with headquarters in Arizona, where she overlooks uh, hospitality and retail, retail partnerships. Welcome, Sophia. Uh, and our last distinguished panelist is Professor Nidal Hilal. Professor Nidal is a chartered engineer with, uh, uh, in the United Kingdom, a registered European engineer, an elected fellow of both the Institution of Chemical Engineers and the Learned Society of Wales. He received his bachelor's degree in chemical engineering in 1981, followed by a master's degree in advanced chemical engineering from Swansea University in 1985. He received his PhD degree from Swansea University in 1988, and in 2005 he was awarded a senior doctorate, uh, doctor of science degree from the University of Wales in recognition of an outstanding research contribution in the field of water processing, including desalination and membrane science and technology. He was also awarded by the Emir of Kuwait the prestigious Kuwait Prize, the Kuwait Medal of Applied Science for the year 2005, and Manelos Medal 2020 by the Learned Society of Wales for Excellence in Engineering and Technology. His research interests lie broadly in the identification of innovative and cost-effective solutions within the fields of nanowater, membrane technology, and water treatment, including desalination, colloid engineering, and the nanoengineering applications of AFM. He has published eight handbooks, eight to invited book, invited book chapters, and more than 500 articles in the refereed scientific literature. He has shared and delivered lectures at numerous international conferences and prestigious organizations around the world. Professor Ndal is the ed editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Desalination, and he sits on the editorial boards of a number of international journals. He's an advisory board member of several multinational organizations and has served on and consulted for industry, government departments, research councils, and universities on an international basis. Welcome, Professor. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, so, we have a wonderful panel all together. Uh, I would like to pose a few questions to all of you before we move to a focus on your areas of specialization. And I'd like you to answer, uh, you know, in a few short sentences so we can have some key messages around those key topics. So, um, I'll start with Professor Dahl. Professor, um, what would you say are the main threats to water security in the region? How, was climate change, how has climate change impacted access to water in recent years? What are the major challenges in countries like the UAE in addressing the increasing water demand uh, while being severely impacted by water scarcity? Scarcity, excuse me. Is technology the only solution? Well, absolutely. The technology uh, in general uh, saves us. It saved the humankind uh, all over generations. Uh, and the water uh, is specifically uh, very important to everyone around the world. Uh, 
the region here uh, suffers from water shortages. And thanks to the leadership here and to the country in general, the way they are leading, uh, the, the way they are dealing with uh, providing water to citizens and people living in this country. I think in general, uh, we have to look into the water shortages and the way we improve water into two sides. Mm -hmm. The demand side, uh, uh, which is decreasing water demand and increasing uh, usage of re uh, reused water in general, and the uh, increase in uh, reducing, increase of production and reducing mm -hmm. energy in general. Mm -hmm. uh, so the demand sides could take a lot of things, takes from water recycling to, uh, to, to many of these things. And, and, and the supply side, uh, I would say for the region here is mainly desalination. Uh, we aim to, to look into desalinating water with the lowest energy possible. I know EWIC recently has uh, helped building Tawila plant. And the stories I heard about it in the last webinar, I think the Her Excellency, the Vice Chancellor was there at the time, uh, very encouraging and I think pioneering to the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, Sophia, would you like to add? Um, yes, of course. Uh, I think this is a very important question, uh, not only for the UAE, but also for the whole Middle East and globally. Um, Something that I would like to touch upon is also to build a, re a resilient water management, uh, both looking at how we're using the water today, but also looking at the sources of water that we are using. Uh, I agree that desalination is a fabulous way of producing water and is one of the most important ways here in this region, together with extracting the groundwater that we today also know is uh, going lower and lower not only here, but also in other parts of the world. Uh, something I want to add there in terms of technology is also to find new sources for water. Where can we find water that we haven't seen today? And one of those ways is also to look into something that is all around us, uh, to look at the water that we have in the air. I can give you an example that if you're only looking at the drinking water, which is only a small portion, of what we consume in the overall water, but it's also the most important portion of what we are consuming. Because the two first liters that we use, the ones that we drink, is actually what makes us, keep, keeping us alive, right? And if we would use 2%, or if we tap into 2% of the humidity around us, we could actually supply drinking water for everyone on Earth. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at 7 billion people uh, by doing so. So I think the combination of using different technologies for different purposes will be very important, uh, both here, but also globally. Thank you, Sophia. Luke? I really want to echo uh, both of my fellow panelists' comments on desalination. We've currently got around 300 million imperial gallons per day of production. EWEC plan to increase that to about 800 million imperial gallons per day by 2035. The more desalination capacity we have, the more it's distributed around the country, the more storage we have for that desalination capacity means ultimately the country's more secure in the face of any challenges from high impact, low probability events. They could be climate change. It could be an algal bloom. It could be an attack by hostile actors. But the more capacity we've got and the more storage, ultimately, the more resilient the country will be. Let me stay with you also for another question, Luke. Um, 
and you know, speaking about challenges and speaking about the UAE and the region, um, and also in a global level, today's global population increase and economic expansion uh, combined with climate change poses serious threats on uh, water resources. What are the mitigation uh, and planning strategies in, in that essence could be utilized to address the challenges on a global level? That's a good question, thanks. I, th- I think, I think there's, there's, I'll answer in two parts. One, how do we measure the risks any country faces from high-impact, low-probability events, or tail-end risk, call it what you will? That could be fires in Texas. Um, it could be uh, bushfires in, in California. We've seen both of those very recently. Um, how do you measure them, and can you manage the risk of them because that comes at a high cost to consumers? So mm. if, you, if you build a system to deal with a one-in-a-hundred event, it's going to be an expensive system. So there's a lot of thinking going on around the world globally to build systems that are resilient to mm. those kind of tail-end risks. That's the first thing, and I don't think anyone's quite quite nailed down the best answer to that yet. Mm-hmm. And the, the second aspect is, how do you manage those risks? risks? I think greater in, interconnection with friendly neighbouring countries mm-hmm. also helps manage that risk. That could be having a surplus of water in this country and selling it to Oman, for instance, or it could be making even better use of the GCCIA, the Gulf Interconnection Authority, mm-hmm. where we could uh, trade electricity um, with the likes of Saudi Arabia, etc. Mm-hmm. It's about building those friendly ties and having a bigger interconnected system. Absolutely, absolutely. Sophia, would you like to add? Uh, yes, um, I'm just thinking about like, climate change in a bigger picture and also what is actually impacting the water mm-hmm. sources around us. Because uh, as we heard in the keynote as well, uh, we tend to have too much water, too little water or too dirty water, which often happens as well because water bodies becoming polluted. Um, I would probably put it in two pockets. I would put it both from the consumer perspective of how we are using water today. Can we decrease that usage? Can we be more efficient in terms of our own water uses? And then I will also looking at the source of the water that we are using today and how it's impacting climate change in the overall. Um, again, because I'm coming from the drinking water perspective, uh, I would just look at the bottled water that we are consuming. Uh, I think today the UAE is one of the highest capa- um, per capita in terms of bottled water. And how can we then bring water closer to home? instead and then cut a lot of the CO2 that comes into that production. So I think it's both about looking at water as it is, but also looking at the overall infrastructure around water and how we consume it and then how it impacts climate change. Agreed. Professor, your insights? Uh, I mean, rain uh, is going to be affected by the climate change. It's predicted that uh, it's going to drop 15 to 20 percent uh, in the next 50 years. And, and we need, in general, around the globe, uh, to compensate that, in a way. Because rain is, in many countries around the world, is the main water supply for rivers, for, for, the, for the undergrounds, and so on. Uh, and again, rising temperature uh, is going to increase evaporation. That's another effect for reducing what we have with, with less rain. Uh, and I think with these with these things, we need to look into other uh, supplies to to compensate mm-hmm. the demand. I mean, if you look at the MENA region alone, you have 80% of the wastewater is not recycled, and that is an opportunity uh, to meet water demand is 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 lost in many ways. 
And again, the productivity of water uh, in the MENA region is half the average of the world. This is another thing. We need to look into, in, in, into these uh, uh, things. And, and the MENA region in general, uh, it's, it's, it has many countries. Over 20 countries are the most scarred countries in water in general. So we, look, we need to look into renewable resources, into alternative ways of producing water uh, uh, to compensate for this for mankind. Absolutely, Professor. Agreed. Um, and I'll stay with you for the next question. Um, and speaking of desalination before um, and touching base during our first question, um, I want to speak a little bit and ask you about, uh, and also extend the question also to all three panelists, about the main byproducts of desalination, which is brine. Uh, and brine is the hyper-salty uh, water, which is mostly pumped into the sea. And according to studies, it would be enough uh, uh, um, uh, over a year to cover the U.S. state of Florida by 30 centimeters, which is approximately one foot uh, of it. Um, uh, and it actually can cut levels of oxygen in, sea, oxygen in seawater near desalination plants with profound impacts on selfish crabs and other creatures uh, on the seabed, leading to ecological effects observable throughout the food chain. Professor, what can, uh, can be done to ensure that the much-needed desalination process, of course, in the region becomes more eco-friendly? Can we utilize the byproducts and put them in good use, potentially? Are there any viable alternatives to desalination? And I'll start with you and then with our other panelists. Desalination technology produces fresh water. Of course, the, the downside of it is that what's left behind in the process itself. And what's left behind is the brine. Uh, we produce around the globe around 142 million cubic meters of brine every day. And, 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 and this is, unfortunately, the practice around the globe in many desalination plants, and not, if not all of them, they throw it back to the sea. In, in, in the Atlantic Ocean or the, or, or the Mediterranean, to some limits, it's a big sea. Mm -hmm. They could go and nature takes care of these things. In this part of the world here, the Arabian Gulf is a very closed area. And when you throw this uh, brine back into it, it has a cocktail, cocktail of, of, of many things from the desalination plants, including chemicals we add to clean the processes and so on and all these things. And the temperature for the brine is higher than the, mm -hmm. uh, than the temperature uh, of the sea. Uh, And, 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 and we are uh, actually uh, uh, losing big opportunity mm -hmm. with the brine. The brine has uh, a lot of minerals in it. Um, some of those minerals are rare minerals, mm -hmm. rare elements, uh, like lithium, for example, which we use for batteries everywhere, like sodium, plenty of sodium in it as well. We use it for batteries. Uh, and, 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 and rubidium, cesium, a lot of other chemicals in it. Some of those chemicals, some might uh, uh, argue that the economically not viable to, to produce them on a large scale and so on. But if you look at lithium, for example, the market size of lithium is, is, uh, is around uh, 2.7 billion in 2020. Mm -hmm. And that is going to increase about 15% every year. Uh, and other minerals are the same in a way. I think this country could lead the world in, in, in dealing with the brine. Uh, 
because in this part of the world, we do half of the desalination in, in, in general. So we produce about 48, 49% of desalinated water uh, globally. And the brine is related into this as well. So we produce a lot of brine. So if you look at 50% recovery of desalination, already the, these elements are doubled in, 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 in percentages in the brine. And a lot of people now around the globe, they are looking into deep sea mining. We don't have to go to the deep sea here. We already have the concentrated brine. We have it. And those elements, they have plenty of usage in our daily life. And I just mentioned lithium, mm -hmm. sodium, and, and, and others, but a lot of other elements we can use in, in many industries, ranging from pharmaceutical to food industry to batteries and so on and all mm -hmm. these things. Definitely, we can look into brine as a resource rather than waste. Look, mm -hmm. you agree? 100%, totally agree. Ewek, I second everything Professor almost, um, Professor said. I think I think Ewek is supportive. We're working with Sandu Kalwatan to provide our technical experts to support their Rethink Brian challenge. Similarly, we're providing Brian samples to different universities. They're working on things like prototypes for COVID-19 medicine or construction materials. I think it's entirely a positive initiative that Ewek fully stand behind. Absolutely. Sophia, your insights? Uh, yes, I'm thinking which angle I should take on this. I, I really like what you're talking about, uh, especially also looking at the recycle, but reuse and use of uh, resources in a better way. Um, I think today in the Middle East, we use desalination for, for, for a lot of things, right? And we also tend to transport it very long distance. So we add additional CO2 in this transportation, looking at communities that are not located in the coastline. I think we can use alternative technologies for those areas that today maybe not have groundwater. We see a shrinking groundwater table where we can deploy something completely on ground over there. There's the, those, that such a technology. And uh, the interesting thing with with but that technology is technically that whatever you pull out uh, from, from the air or you can actually use. So looking at the waste that comes into desalination, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have that by using that technology in those areas. And that becomes very important because even if you're looking at an oil process in those <clears throat> communities, you will still extract a lot of water. But with a depleting groundwater table, you wouldn't have that resource to extract that water. So I think... There is technologies that can work very a lot hand in hand with desalination, and we just need to find the different pockets for each technology. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you, Sophia. Um, moving on towards more specific questions on your areas of specialization, and starting with Professor Nidal. Um, professor, uh, global demand for water is expected to increase, and actually, uh, it will be more than doubled by 2050. Within the next decade, two-thirds of the world population could be living in water-stressed countries, two-thirds. The number of people living in cities is expected to rise from about 55% to almost 70% by 2050. And cities are expected to be severely impacted by water scarcity. UAE and about 150 other countries are, are on or near the coastline uh, with minimal rainfall and little fresh water. And uh, for these countries, there is currently little choice, as we've been discussing, but to rely on desalination technology. 
Having in mind that desalination water accounts for more than 90% of the UAE fresh water supply, my question is, are we on track to transform desalination uh, to a more sustainable, less energy-intensive process, right, as we've been discussing, especially with Brian, and also mm, understanding that it is indeed a very energy-intensive process as we speak. And how can research centers contribute to the water scarcity challenge in the region? Which are the key research questions, for example, that the NYUAD uh, Water Research Center is trying to address? The NYUAD Water Research Center uh, does a lot of work on desalination. And uh, we are now globally recognized as one of the leaders in desalination research. In fact, uh, just last week, uh, it has been announced that uh, the most 25 downloaded papers on desalination, eight of them are published at NYUAD Water Research Center. We take a holistic approach uh, to solving the water crisis in general. So our center has uh, three main uh, themes. One of them, desalination and membrane uh, separations, membrane materials, developments, and so on. One of them, wastewater and water recycling and reuse. And one of them, environmental sustainability to the effect of desalination and water in general. Uh, the uh, uh, researchers at the center uh, are not from one area. They are engineers, scientists, and economists as well. We all work together to solve the problem uh, uh, with this. Like, for example, developing, uh, developing membrane technology uh, that reduces the energy for desalination is extremely important. We have uh, now around the world, we use uh, RO membranes for desalination. Just as an example, the RO membranes uh, that we buy are the same RO membranes sold in Los Angeles, sold in the UK, sold in China, and sold here to the region. And yet, the water in the region here is completely different to the water in other parts of the world, due to high salinity, mm -hmm. temperature, harsh conditions, and so on. And that is going to reflect on the RO membranes we are going to be using or we use in desalination plants. And that is going to cause fouling. And when that causes these things, fouling, which is basically it's the position of unwanted materials over the membrane surface. And imagine if the membrane of people who are not interested or who don't, don't know about membranes are, have little pores in them and let the water go, clean water go through. If these fouling materials deposit on the membrane surface, that we need more energy mm -hmm. to, 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 to produce water and then more energy to clean the membranes mm -hmm. itself. So, one of the things we are doing here uh, is developing uh, new membranes, uh, those membranes tailored for the region. Mm -hmm. And we look into these things from the nanoscale, atomic scale, up to the industrial scale. Uh, with the support we had from the vice chancellor and, and, and the leadership here, we were able to build a unique lab in the region here. And I'm proud to say that the, the lab we have, the facilities we have, are unique in the whole MENA region. We are capable of doing things from the nanoscale and producing a membrane module that can take that into industry. Mm. 
and those membrane modules. When we produce them, we have pilot to test them on the local water for days and weeks until we prove these things they work. With producing such things in the region here, it's, it's unique to the whole region and it improves on the desalination and reducing the energy uh, that uh, we require for desalinating water from the Arabian Gulf here. Thank you very much, Doctor, for sharing mm. uh, the amazing work that you're doing to uh, improve efficiency uh, of the membranes. And it's really fascinating to be hearing about the work that you're doing. Um, Luke, the next question is for you. Um, the image Water Electricity Company drives the planning, forecasting, purchase, and supply um, of water and electricity in the Emirates of Abu Dhabi and beyond in the Northern Emirates as well. <coughs> What are the main strategies that EWEC employs to address the water challenges in Abu Dhabi? What are the plans over the next 20 years to support the country's uh, broader target of achieving net zero by 2050? Okay, thanks. Yeah. So EWEC does, it sounds deceptively simple, the three things that EWEC do, but it's at the heart of EWEC. We ensure that the security standards for production of power and water are met i.e. the lights stay on, and when you switch on a faucet, water comes out. Secondly, we have to achieve that at the very least cost to consumers that's possible, and at the same time, we need to meet whatever governmental mandates on sustainability are put into place. It's a really neat alignment to the energy trilemma, where it's got to be reliable, it's got to be cheap, and it's got to be green. In most jurisdictions, you can take any two of those, whereas the challenge we've been given by the leadership is to achieve all three. So sustainability, cost, and security. A critical thing to understand about Abu Dhabi, and it's kind of unique in my experience, is the way the power and the water systems are connected. Um, they're, they're linked fundamentally. And the strategies that EWEC are following for both power and water are complementary. Um, so on the power side, and I know this is about water, but I have to talk about power and the fact that they're connected, so forgive me. On the power side, we're... We're building the six gigawatt Baraka nuclear power station. Two out of the four units are in service as we speak, producing zero emission, um, safe nuclear power. At the same time, we're retiring around 10 gigawatts of old legacy carbon intensive gas, gas units as well. And we're also harnessing some of the cheapest power that's ever been created in the history of humankind at, at, at large-scale solar facilities, which are happening in Abu Dhabi and also in Dubai. And these are, these are a step change. You know, if you go and buy power on the European market now, you're paying $100, $200 a megawatt hour for supply. We're supplying it for $15 a megawatt hour. Mm -hmm. And imagine the kind of advantage that gives um, the economy in, in, in the Abu Dhabi region. So at the same time with water, historically speaking, we've produced water in this, in this emirate by cogeneration plants that's gas power stations running where the waste used to be a, a kind of uh, sorry the heat used to be a waste that would be used to desalinate the water but but that was that had a number of things that were kind of concerning about it one you're burning lots of gas that's increasing your emissions um your carbon emissions and, and also it's a really expensive way of doing it it's around 25 um, kilowatt hours per meter cubed that's how much power it takes to produce a cubic meter we're replacing that old legacy um, co-generation with reverse osmosis. I, I can't say enough how reverse osmosis is a, an enabler for this emirate. It's an amazing technology. It's not without its problems, as Professor, as you mentioned with Brian, but it, compared to the alternatives out there, it's, it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. phenomenal. 
I mentioned that the cogeneration is around 25 kilowatt hours per meter cubed of water. Um, you're looking at around three kilowatt hours for reverse osmosis. So it takes so much less energy to drive this process to get the same amount of water. Because of that, the more reverse osmosis you put in, the less gas you burn and your emissions come down. As I said earlier, we're looking at building around 800 MIGD of, um, of capacity. That's enough to meet peak demand on the biggest day of the year. And that's leading to our emissions in the Emirate dropping from about 45 um, megatons per annum of CO2 to around 20 megatons per annum over a 10-year period, halving our emissions, um, which is hugely enabling us to meet the government's target of net zero by 2050. So to, to recount, both on the power and on the water side, new, new technologies are coming in which allow us to displace gas, which allows us to reduce emissions. The beautiful thing about it from my perspective is the new technology is not only cleaner, it's more sustainable, but it's also a lot cheaper. And I just want to finish by giving you an example of that. Um, you're looking around $2 per cubic meter for water produced from the old methods. You're looking at about 50 cents with the new technology we're putting in. It's 25% of the cost. So to circle back to where I started, is it greener? Yes. Is it more secure? Yes. And is it cheaper? Yes. Thank you very much, Luke. Uh, and thank you for sharing all the the work that you, uh, the, the team has been doing and EWIC has been doing to drive, um, you know, the country's um, um, broader aspiration towards going net zero. This is all fantastic work that EWIC is doing. And we are, um, you know, looking forward to witness even more of that in the future. Sophia, the next, the next question is about you uh, and your work at Source. Um, I would like to ask you, how is Source working to contribute to this global challenge of water security? Can you speak to us a little bit about the technology behind Source Water? How does it work? Is it sustainable? And what are the longer-term plans of Source in the region, but also on a global level? Um, and also, finally, can you also tell us a bit more about your work to provide safe drinking water to vulnerable communities in different parts of the world? Yes. Uh Thank you for a very good uh, question. I think there's a lot of people here right now wondering what is source and what, uh, what do we do? I was talking about water from air here. And I want to touch upon a little bit about the innovation that we've been talking about and, and advancement in technology. Uh, source is an American company. We are headquartered in Arizona, as you heard in the beginning. Uh, our technology is technically invented in a similar climate as we have here in the Middle East and by our founder, Cody Friesen. Is invented at uh, Arizona State University. So we are very happy for that collaboration with, because we keep doing improvements to our technology all the time. Um, what we do as a company is technically that we have a mission and that is to perfect drinking water for every person in every place, to make drinking water and uh, renewable, but also unlimited resource. Mm -hmm. Both looking at how we are consuming drinking water in the cities, but also looking at areas where people cannot afford or cannot access drinking water. So what Cody did was technically by using material silence, uh, science, he invented something that we call hydro panel. It looks similar to uh, a solar panel, uh, very similar to a solar panel, but instead of producing energy, we are producing clean drinking water by extracting the water vapor in the air. And we do that in 100% off-grid. Uh, so we are 100% sustainable, 100% renewable. 
and you can literally place it on the ground and it's going to start producing water in 15 minutes. Uh, how the process works, because I know someone is going to ask me about this later, uh, is technically that we're using the sun and the solar panels to drive the systems and drive the fans within the systems, where we pull in ambient air that passes through hydroscopic materials that only extracts pure H2O molecules. So the only thing it takes up is pure H2O molecules. And then we use a solar thermal technology where we kind of heat that by heating up air flows and collecting the water vapor, we use the difference between the ambient air and the hotter air and until the water uh, reaches a dew point and it condensates. The condensated water is, again, absolutely pure. So we start pure from starch. You have something that calls distilled water, which you probably know about, and it's probably not the best thing to drink, right? So what we do then is that we're mineralizing the water with calcium and magnesium, which also makes us an ability to curate the water based on the markets. Uh, and this whole way of producing water in this way also gives an ability to produce the same water of the same quality wherever we deploy it. So right now we're in 52 markets. Uh, Middle East is one of our key focus markets, especially the UAE. We have our office here in the UAE for the Middle East, and we have actually 30 products already in the region, both with big companies, uh, small companies, schools, hospitals, and looking at expanding that also into other areas. Uh, we're working in a lot of different types of segments. As mentioned, my, my roots is within the hospitality and the retail segment, but we also work with remote working sites, um, Again, schools and hospitals, governments, communities, very big in terms of how we deploy our technology and what support we can give. Um, but I want to give you two examples of our projects, one which is very dear to my heart, and one is, which is also dear to my heart. But the first one is that we are the official water bottle for the Red Sea Development Company in Saudi where they have now implemented a circular glass model. So the same bottles that we have on the table but with source water, it's going to go over and over again in a more sustainable way. Our project here in the UAE is uh, one with Masafi. Uh, so Masafi is going to launch with us uh, this year into retail. Where, And this kind of shows a little bit about us as a company because we are a corporate B organization. So the more we get support from commercial clients, the more we also expand our technologies to communities in need. So we have two sides of the coin. So every time then you would buy or drink the water with Masafi, we would also give water back to communities in need in the GCC. So we would do permanent infrastructures mm -hmm. and installations uh, at locations and communities that they cannot afford drinking water today. Um, and we've done several of those projects where we um, have deployed our technologies in areas where they cannot access clean drinking water. So recently we did a project with Starbucks in Timor-Leste in a community called Dehoho. Uh, it's a very interesting project where we had women and children working two hours a day. Uh, it's actually a fact that 200 million hours a day is spent by women and children to collect drinking water that is often unsafe to drink. Uh, so what we did here is that we, we took our hydropanels together with our partner with Starbucks and we placed the water source in the village where it's supposed to be. And, and that's, uh, I don't think I have too much time <laughs> to talk about it. 
Um, but I think uh, that's really like in the DNA of Source that what we're trying to do is that we're trying to create something that is completely renewable for a very important mission, but also supporting um, both the organizations that will become more sustainable, but also the people that cannot afford drinking water. Uh, and how we can connect those dots together uh, and, and, and then work towards climate change and work towards the bigger picture, both in the region uh, as well as uh, globally. So that's a little bit about us. Thank you so much, Sophia. Especially the work that you're doing to support the vulnerable community is really amazing. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I have one last question for all of you, and then we can take some questions from the audience and also from our um, Uh, from our Zoom audience, if I might call it. Um, and I'll start with Professor Nadal. Um, professor, you know, we've been hearing all the great work you know, that the Water Research Center is doing, EWIC and, of course, Source, uh, from you know, uh, different points of view, addressing more or less the same challenge. My question is, how we can encourage uh, collaborations between academia, private sector, and government sectors to address all those different challenges? One of the core objectives of uh, NYUAD Water Research Center is to engage regional stakeholders. That includes both governmental and private sectors. Uh, and the reason for that, because we have a lot of facilities can help advancing uh, the research, so research and development as well, in, in a way. So our research is guided by industrial needs. And... Uh, From early stages of research into the product, uh, uh, we need the input from industrial partners and from uh, stakeholders in general. Uh, and, and for that reason, uh, the advisory board, for example, for the Water Research Center, we have 14 uh, advisory boards for the Water Research Center. Eight of them are regional mm -hmm. stakeholders, governmental and private stakeholders. And the other or the rest are international key players. And some of those international key players are companies, big players in the water industry, and they are based, or they have bases here in the country. So, uh, so I think uh, engagement with stakeholders, with industry, to show that universities can solve problems mm -hmm. on a daily basis faced by industry is extremely important. And, and, and one of those engagements is, is our recent uh, uh, partnership with EWIC, actually, mm -hmm. to advance research in, 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 in the water and in membrane technology and in desalination. So this is a key, I think, in a way. Uh, keep talking to industry and, and, and listening what problems they have. And, and in fact, in this part of the world, uh, We, our industries are a bit slow to come to universities for solving problems. In, 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 in the West, uh, industries go to universities because universities provide research cheaper than, than what they do in industry to solve the problem. And, and, and academia has, a lot of people are specialized and I wouldn't say are, have bigger brains than industry, but in a way, they're, but they are... Uh, having, they, uh, they, they devote all their time into research and development. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and that's, that's extremely important, uh, I think, uh, 
or approach from industry and to engage engagement between industry and, and universities. Absolutely, Professor. Absolutely. Look, there's so much about what I'm going to say that, that runs parallel to mm -hmm. what the professor said. Um, at the moment, if you imagine solar panels um, out in the in the desert here, say mm -hmm. if you went out to Nora or something like that, they sit there. They might track a little bit to get a bit more sun, but they're essentially just creating electrons. That's great, and it's a huge advance. If you think, though, to the future where whole grids are going to be operating just on solar panels, I'll give you an example. South Australia became last year the first gigawatt-scale grid in the world to run purely on solar power. And in fact, actually, it was producing 130% of its own demand and exporting mm -hmm. that surplus to neighboring, neighboring interconnected entities. The, the panels are sat there. In, in, it's a different model in Australia. Households put them on their roofs rather than having big solar farms. But the, the idea is the same. And, and what, what, what South Australia are doing and Australia as a whole, and I think I see an opportunity for us to do it, is they're, they're making that solar intelligent. They're, being, they're allowing the grid operators to control it. So at times when it needs backing off, it can be. When you want to maximise production, because it's economic to do so, they can control all of those things. And it's actually at the level where, even if you've got some solar panels on your house, they can control, they can send signals from the central control room and say, back that, that, that amount off down there because it's economic to do that sometimes. We've got an opportunity to develop those processes here. They haven't really been perfected anywhere in the world on grid scale. But if we can, we can have co-location of storage with our big, very, very cheap solar farms, and we can use them to provide reserves leading to a more secure system. And that's something that industry are being slow to do. It's something that universities are excellent at solving. And, and it's the kind of problem that mm -hmm. I think will be solved in a university. And it parallels your example so much that there's an opportunity there. There's identification of new services and new control systems and new processes. And I think that's where that partnership will actually re reap dividends immediately that's exportable and around the world because we're ahead of the curve here. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. but, but where we go, almost everyone's going to follow. Coal will be phased out. There will be some nuclear left around the place, but then it's going to be renewables. Mm -hmm. And the, the way we can harness them and more effectively harness benefits is a huge opportunity. Thank you, Luke. Sophia? Uh, well, I love this topic, obviously coming from the trade council side as well. Um, I think it's really important, as I mentioned, uh, our technology is more or less invented at Arizona State University. We still have our headquarters at Arizona State University and we still conduct our research at, at the university. So we definitely believe in the cooperation between the academia and the industry to be able to promote innovation. Uh, I also, uh, I'm a big promoter towards also the government being involved in this uh, process. I think it's really important, both looking at the uh, legislation uh, for new technologies, but also looking at the, the early adoption of new technologies, because that also has to happen. The technology that we're doing research on, the technology that the industry is putting out there, also have to be adopted by someone in the beginning. And there, I think the government can play a very important role. I also think that the government can pay, uh, play a very important role in looking at the awareness of the technology, uh, talking about how we use it and, and how it works. There is also uh, an opportunity where we can work uh, together. Um, something I, I forgot to tell you about our hydro panels and our other assets around the world is that they are actually connected. 
So we can monitor them 24-7 and we can collect data looking at water production and water quality. And that by, by being at the university, we can also, of course, we get access to a lot of brilliant minds uh, to further develop our technology and make it even more localized in certain region and make it more even more even efficient. Uh, so uh, I'm a big promoter of this topic. Same here. Um, right. We can uh, now take some questions from the audience. If anybody's interested, you can go to one of the mics nearby. Um, I know there is a lot of people, I can see a lot of people that they want to ask some questions, so please. Uh, thank you very much for uh, this very important topic and uh, uh, thank you for all the speaker. Uh, my question, especially for uh, the water from air, uh, what is the efficiency of producing water uh, from air in different regions? For example, in Abu Dhabi here, we have a humid region, a humid area. But if you go to Alain, it's very dry. Yeah. What um, is the efficiency of producing water? And is it outdoor, should be outdoor, or also in indoor can work? Yeah, so uh, our hydropanels, it's, it's for outdoors because we need the sun to power, uh, power the systems. There is a difference, I would say, between, uh, between different regions, especially looking at this, it's two components in particular. That is the humidity in the air, and then it's also the, the sunlight, uh, because we also need the sunlight to be able to, to produce the water. So those two variables um, um, uh, impact the water production that can, we can do with, on the panel, as each panel. But I would say it in this way, the beauty of the hydro panels is that as much as you can have two hydro panels on a villa, and you will have, provide water for, let's say, four to six people, you can also scale them and you can produce millions of water by using the economies of scale similar to how you have solar. Uh, solar in itself, one panel doesn't produce that much, but when you're putting them together, that's when you really can see the big advantage. And that's why, why we are here, because we, we hope we can make the same journey as solar did in the beginning, but we can do it uh, with drinking water. But yes, there is a difference between different uh, regions. Um, for the Middle East, I would say, as our technology was invented in a very similar climate, we are actually very happy to be here because we constantly have sunlight uh, or sunshine and, and also the humidity is, is pretty good as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. You. Please. Too short for this. I hope you guys can hear me. Um, <laughs> okay, this is better. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Mila. I'm a graduate uh, from Khalifa University, uh, mainly in civil department, but I focus on environmental engineering. So um, I worked in the past year um, on water uh, filtration, specifically for drinking water. And we were looking into the the modification of the uh, biofilters or the most uh, common term is a so sl slow sand filtration system. So my question, I think, um, Dr. Nadal, you'll be able to um, help me understand. Um, so just to give you some background information, uh, you probably know what, what a biosand filter consists of. So our modification was to introduce a layer of biomass specifically coming from date palm trees. And I would like to know if you think 
such technologies with such modifications since biochar or biomass can enhance the capabilities of certain removal efficiencies. Um, do you think such technologies um, can work in, on an industrial level and can at some extent replace the uh, some, some part of the uh, uh, desalination processes? Thank you. Well, this technology is not going to replace the desalination. Uh, biochar is well known to, uh, to, to be used in filters and to polish the water, but to some limits. Yeah, of course, biochar does not remove salt from the water. It removes bacteria and a lot of other things in the water. So such technology can be used as a pretreatment for desalination, where you're removing some of the bacteria and the big the products uh, from that. When I say the big and micron levels, uh, uh, remove them. Because ideally, for, for the desalination, and we use industrially pretreatment. Those pretreatments used to be in the past some chemical pretreatments and so on. But unfortunately, we use a lot of chemicals to clean the water, and then we end up with chemicals. Yes. So with membrane technology, you don't need any chemicals. So we use microfiltration membrane, ultrafiltration membranes to clean some of the big materials. Ideally, we want for the RO to end up with the water coming to the RO, only the salt in it. And with that, we reduce the fouling of the RO membranes. And with that, we have longer life of the membrane. But the biochar can be used as a pretreatment, but does not replace the technology for desalination. Thank you. Um, the reason for my question uh, was because uh, the water that we received from the system that we've created was able to meet the standards set forth by the World Health Organization. Uh, we were able, able to remove a lot of the metal contaminants as well as the biological contaminants and the physical contaminants. So I was thinking whether or not we can utilize um, the, the palm trees that we have here or some of that uh, waste and generate biomass by which we can produce drinking water? Well, for the palm trees, you don't need bring drinking water. You can no. have water with yeah. a bit lower quality for agriculture, mm -hmm. because otherwise you'll be spending more money yeah. to polish the water to a very high standard and then use it for agriculture. For agriculture in general, the amount of water we have on the globe, uh, if you divide it to percentages, 70% we use for that water for agriculture, 20% for industry, and 10% for mm. sanitation and drinking and what we need ourselves as humans. So this big 70%, you don't need the water to be of a drinking quality. Because some crops can take water with less quality than that. And with that, we save energy, we save money, and we save water for drinking. Mm. That's what it is. Yes. So, so you don't need it for drinking water. Yeah, I you could like, use it for agriculture if it's suitable for agriculture. I meant like using agricultural waste to generate biochar by which we can use to treat uh, water to either um, a reusable level or hopefully drinking water. This level. is a specific research question. Yes. I need to talk to you one-to-one. -one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go deeper in science and, and bore some of the people here. <laughs> um, hi. Uh, my question is uh, for uh, Mr. Luke and uh, Dr. Nadal, because um, I think it addresses an issue in industry that definitely for sure 
research and uh, development uh, can be helped. Uh, it can help in this. Uh, so, Mr. Luke, you touched on a very important aspect, which was the fact that EWIC is retiring. Uh, the cogeneration power plants, which um, for the audience currently, um, the UAE, most of our power plants generate both water and <coughs> electricity, where we use the waste heat that's generated from the natural gas turbines that generate electricity to power um, these big units that boil the water essentially to create fresh water. Um, now, as you're retiring the natural gas turbines to take in the electricity from the nuclear power plant, you have a copious amount of um, desalination equipment that's essentially going to be rendered useless since we're moving to reverse osmosis. Um, is there a way to salvage that? Because, you know, for example, uh, I've, I've read about how the U.S. Department of Energy is more focusing on uh, CSP, concentrated solar power, which is thermal solar power, to power multi-stage or multi-effect distillation to reach a similar... Um, you know, uh, cost saving of about 50 US dollar cents per cubic meter. So uh, I was wondering, is, is, you know, given the fact that the UAE has invested close to about 50 billion uh, dirhams, considering the depreciation of these assets by <clears throat> this point in time, um, is there a way to salvage these assets at the moment? Or, or and is EWIC looking into that? Thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. And I noted your explanation of cogeneration technology was considerably better than mine. So let me know if you'd like to come and sit down, and I'll go back there. Um, sure. <laughs> um, it's it's a really good good question. Um, the way the way we are set up is EWEC doesn't own the assets themselves; they're owned by a combination of foreign investors, and then at, at home here in in Abu Dhabi, co-owned by Tarka as well. So. So we we only contract with the facilities for their production um, over the lifetime of the asset. It's a it's 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 a good question. It would be considered during the decommissioning phase by the asset owners themselves, um, and they'd take a view on what what is recoverable and what isn't. There is still a, an undoubted gulf between MED or MSF versus new reverse osmosis and. We 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 think we think our well we've calculated that that our RO program will bring um, net benefits of about four four billion uh, US dollars. So you don't want to keep the the more capacity that's MED and MSF in. Uh, it's just basically delaying you bringing in RO. Where the real value though with um, these old old legacy technologies is actually reusing the sites. The sites are often connected to the HV high voltage network. They've often got water inlets and water outlets that can be reused for new sites. They, they're located away from prime residential areas as well. And so where we really see value in the legacy assets is redeveloping the sites so they can take the, the technology of the future. Thanks again for the question. Thank you. I don't know if I may add something here myself, so you controversial yeah. in a way. One from, uh, I am a chemical engineer. I don't believe in waste heat. A lot of people use the word waste heat. There's no waste heat. That heat can be used in a lot of things. And the UAE has plenty of that. And, and, and the waste heat can generate electricity, can be used to save a lot of energy for the RO plants and for other things in the country. So I've always uh, touched into this topic with the students being a chemical engineer, a bit old-fashioned in these things. There was no, nothing called waste heat. But a lot of people use this uh, terminology, waste heat. 
I don't know, am I right or wrong? <laughs> Here we are, we speak the same language. <laughs> Hello from the right side. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Please. All right. Hi, I'm Zed Husami. I'm with Maruna. Uh, we were actually one of the startups with the Aldar Scale-Up NYU, and we do on-site nature-based uh, nature wastewater treatment systems. Antonio, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, from our days of consulting. Um, and I've got two questions, and I'll leave it to the panelists to decide who will answer. So one of them is actually from back in the day from the consulting, we would model buildings and their water use and a lot of times what you model is doesn't come out so to quote somebody from adssc we all know a real man flushes twice so you give him a half flush nobody ever uses it so a country like hong kong um, they're using partially desalinated water is that somewhere on the books here for flushing because that represents about 25 percent of your water use and another thing was last week we were at the Water Utility Congress and all the rage was hydrogen. And to go back to what Simon was saying about the um, water energy nexus. And if we want to talk about green hydrogen, how is that going to happen with desalination? And so just doctor, is there something to do about partially desalinated water? You're talking about not taking water to a quality that more than what you need. And we're basically flushing drinking water down the toilet. That's it. Want to take the first segment? Look, no. perhaps for modeling. Um, I, I think I'm probably the least qualified person on this podium to answer that from a kind of domestic use perspective. So I'm going to keep my answer really quick. Um, one of the things about being a modeler, and I've, I've been mo energy market modeling for 15 years now, um, is any any model is going to be wrong. And... You can once you get comfortable with that, it's about reducing that error down as much as possible. Um, but look, I, I I'll pass over to more qualified people to answer on dual quality in in residential mm -hmm. buildings. Yeah, the use of partially desalinated water is a very good idea if you want to use that water replacement to the grey water in general, uh, or for flushing the toilets or domestic use and all these these things. That saves on the energy you're putting to, to, to polish the water and get the drinking water. Is that logarithmic? Say it again? Is it logarithmic, the energy saving? From energy saving point of view, yes, it is. If it's partially desalinated, uh, you can use it as long as you're not using for cooking, for, for, mm. for drinking, or for growing uh, food. Okay. So I think from Simon's point of view, that is, um, sorry, Luke, is the utilities, is there any plans for that? But um, on the second question on hydrogen, maybe that's for you. Yes, I, I, can, I can have an answer to that. We, we've, we, we look at, we, we build models and we're constantly valuing hydrogen. At the moment, EWEX remit is to, to produce secure power at the least cost to consumers. Where it stands at the moment, hydrogen is not competitive as a as a carrier or as a technology compared to some of the existing ones. What our job to, is to do is basically fully follow any government um, targets on this. We, we fully stand by, we're in support of the, 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 the DOE's um, hydrogen targets. Where, where we can't operate, though, is where we would be recommending something that was more expensive and would increase cost to consumers over another technology type. So it's a watching brief to see when it does come down to the right price um, or follow government targets. 
Thanks. Um, any other questions? Ops? Yeah, hello, my name is uh, Latifa. I'm a student here at NYUAD. And my question is, so based on the you know, large percentage of water used in agriculture, um, do you agree that there exists a nexus between water security and food security? And if so, can um, reducing the need for water or at least treated water in agriculture significantly help tackle water security challenges in the region? And so just to provide an example, um, at ICBA in Dubai, the International Center for Biosaline Agriculture, they're researching uh, towards adapting our agricultural practices here in um, in the UAE. And the researchers are working with halophytes, which are types of plants that um, are salt tolerant. And um, so that would allow us to reduce the need for treated water and I guess use um, irrigated seawater instead. And do you think like practices like these can contribute to conversations on um, water security challenges. Thank you. Who wants to take that? Uh, water and food are connected. And water and food and energy are connected. So mm -hmm. you hear around water, food, energy nexus, and you hold water, food, nexus. Absolutely, the connection is there. The connection is there as we speak. I mean, wherever you go, you find food is related to the water and the quality of water you have to produce the food. The things I was touching on myself earlier is the, 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 the purity of the water and the energy you spend on the water to produce for agriculture. It should be different to the energy you produce, you, you spend on the water to produce it for drinking water. At the moment, it's not there because we have the same water coming, spending all the money on it. Uh, uh, it's good for drinking water, and we take, we take 70% of that or 80% of that for agriculture. That's the money, in my opinion, thrown down the drains. That's what it is. And, and it's a big discussion about this. I teach actually a course called Water for Life here, and many of my students go on these things, and we discuss a lot of these Topics and they come up with a lot of ideas in a way for these things. Yeah. Please, Your Excellency. I was hoping as a chemical engineer to come and support me. <laughs> and then. If you are expecting the uh, technology to go down to one kilowatt hour per cubic meter, it's not going to go because it's below the thermodynamic level. Mm. There's a thermodynamic level. A lot of people talk about it, but that depends on the recovery. Around 50% recovery, the thermodynamic level about 1.08 kilowatt hour per cubic meter. For the seawater we have here, which is much higher, it's about 1.38. This is only for the separation. You need to add energy 
in the plant for pumps, for pretreatment, for post-treatment, for all these things. The three kilowatt hour per cubic meter, Luke mentioned, which I had a long discussion myself with the engineers who were working on the plant. It's adding all these things and they are adding some solar energy into it. Yeah, they are adding some solar energy. And this is revolutionary in a way on a big plant. Uh, this is going to be the largest plant in the world, and it is. And it's using solar energy in these things. The big plant in Australia and Perth was using renewable energy, which is, was wind energy they were using for these things. But this is much bigger, and I'm glad to say that the UAE is leading the world in, in, in applying these technologies in many areas, but in my area, in desalination, I'm so happy to be in the land of desalination here. And for NYUAD to help in driving the research into mm -hmm. a new level. Your Excellency, you had a question as well, please. Can we have a mic, uh, if possible, please? Thanks, Amr. <coughs> That's great. I'll start by saying I'm a chemical engineer as well. <laughs> but I'm a double major. Dr. So Said is a chemical engineer yeah. behind you as well. But, but it, happened, it happens though I'm a double major, so I'm a petroleum engineer as well. So started my All career right. in both drilling and petroleum engineer. Then I went to with Adwi at that time. I was a chief desalination engineer. So a big believer of the good old multi-stage flash evaporators and multi-effects and the vapor compression that came later. And of course, the legacy when we started first with our first RO and the teething problem we had with, uh, I think it was a DuPont hollow fiber. Then you had the spiral wand from uh, the Japanese Toyobos. They went out of business. And the issues we had, the high salinity and what have you. So I have all the legacy and the, the problem here. But the thing is, uh, currently I'm the chief operating officer of Tabrid. Uh, we are the largest district cooling provider and the proud provider for cooling for this campus and all of Saadia, Thailand. We happen to be the one of the largest water consumers. So we are addressing here the, the low-hanging fruits here. And for me, we see the legislation with the Department of Energy that district cooling implementation will just increase simply because of the fact that we produce a tonnage for RTH, which is a refrigerant ton for our 12,000 BTUs, at a range of 0.7 kilowatts, as opposed to 1.2, 1.6 with the conventional air-cooled chillers. But the efficiency, of course, comes from using water in our condensers. So uh, huge quantities of water. Unfortunately, it's the same drinking water that you have in your bottles. And uh, I'm being an ex-desalination engineer, Abu Dhabi, we're very proud. We are one of the few countries you can actually drink from the tap. And all of our bottled water is actually tap water, but they happen to be in a fancy bottle. <laughs> so the usage, which is, the, the point is that the story of our water is not complete. As uh, rightly said, 80% of this just goes to the sea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we flush toilets with Masafi. Literally, yep. we, we wash our cars with Masafi. Absolutely. I am evaporating them like crazy in my towers. Um, as an example, NYU is not connected to the grid uh, as far as water is concerned. We are sending around 12 trucks a day just to feed my plant. So imagine if this is replaced by TSE, which is treated sewage water. Mm -hmm. 
which is an effect because Tabrid owns downtown Dubai. So the tallest building is cooled by us in the world and the whole downtown area. And there we use the treated sewage water that comes from a company that's part of Diwas. And as a matter of fact, our polished water, the excess goes to the Dubai fountain. If nobody knows about it, this is Tabrid's water, which is treated water, excess treated water. During the summer, majority of this water gets evaporated in our plants. So usually it's potable water from Diwa. But during the year when the weather is, is the climate is forgiving, the majority of that, that's polished water. So you can imagine the quantities of water that is consumed by district cooling. District cooling is going to increase. I mean, the capacity of Tabrid is 1.2 million tons of cooling. Mm. That that's places us almost where the world's largest publicly traded company when it comes to, uh, to cooling. Our competition, Empower, they are a bit larger than us as well. That's 1.8. So you're talking about not less than 3.5 million RTH. And you can imagine the quantity of water these things are galloping every minute. And if treated sewage water was available, you see how much savings you, you can actually push your capacity, the current capacity forward for the future without any increment. Imagine the CO2 that you save. And, and uh, the fact is that district cooling is more efficient. It's half of the, I mean, 70% of the energy actually goes to cooling in UAE. You can see it in your uh, annual bills. So if that's 70%, having a, a, um, a cooling method that's 50% more efficient, I mean, it's a no-brainer. That's why we see with the legislation regulation that is a lot of these uh, uh, district cooling schemes are going to be implemented. Um, for example, all of Saudi has district cooling. All of Yas almost district cooling. Raha Beach is district cooling. Mm -hmm. Almari Island district cooling. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the development in Dubai district cooling. Downtown Dubai, Nashama, Nakhil, you name it. All of them are actually fed by district cooling plants. And the quantity of water those plants uh, consume are huge. And all of them are actually drinking water. Yep. So expanding on, on our treated sewage water, that's alone is, is huge savings by, by far. And 80%, I would have expected 80% to utilize, not 80% been, been uh, not utilized. As far as ADSSC is concerned, I believe they made uh, one of the world's largest uh, sewage tunnel. I think mm -hmm. this is the second largest after the one in Brazil or, or in Singapore. I've been in one of the tunnels. It's about 5.3 meter wide. And basically, they just bored uh, uh, an underground, a subway tunnel. So collection is there. So now next step would be to provide that network, the back net network, to go, go back to the houses, utilities, uh, farms, uh, all of this stuff like uh, your professor, you, you mentioned that you really don't need the 150 micro Siemens, you know, TDS, which is drinkable, potable water. I mean, you can find the 4,000, 5,000 TSDs and it's, it's all drinkable and uh, sorry, not drinkable, but it's usable. So th these are the low-hanging low fruits that I would like to uh, uh, draw everybody's attention. That it's a quick wins immediately. And uh, as far as uh, R&D is concerned, uh, I got truckload of uh, R&D stuff for, uh, for you, Professor. So I'll, more I'll than would like to send your students and your researchers. With Tabrid, we, uh, we, you know, the cooling towers, the, the large cooling towers, so basically it touches a lot of those uh, nanofiltration and... Uh, and uh, evaporation technology as well. We do, we happen to have a geothermal well. We are offering it for NYU uh, students if they want to, actually we drill that well to a huge uh, cost to us in order to discover using cooling, using absorption type cooling by, by the geothermal well. So it's there, it's in Mazdar city next door. So more than welcome.
Well, I'm extending this to, to NYU researchers and the students as well. Thank Absolutely. you so much. No, can Thank I, you can I add a few Please, things here? Of course. Please. I mean, I'm, I'm delighted you mentioned the TSE. Because I wasn't going to be, I mean, I had my notes, I was going to mention it myself, but the time is very limited. The time is very, very limited for us. Uh, many people are looking to TSE for cooling water, for, 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 for uh, air conditioning. Uh, and it is, in my opinion, it is, it is a line we should look into that very seriously because it saves a lot of energy. The other thing is the wastewater itself, which is 82-83%, is thrown down the drain back again. And that requires much less water. I mean, look at Singapore. Singapore, they are going further with the TSE. And they're drinking it. They're producing bottles of water called the new water. Yeah. And this new water, the price of it, just slightly less than the price of the other bottles of water we have. So we are capable scientifically. Yeah, we are absolutely. I mean, some of my students, I ask them to, would you drink it? And you could imagine the replies in the, in, in the class. So, so I think there is a way of using a lot of water into a lot of things without using high quality water, which we produce in desalination plants and spend a lot of energy on it for drinking. Absolutely. We have exceeded time, so we might take one last question and then it's going to be a reception right after. Uh, so, you know, you can ask as many questions as you want if, you know, you'll stay with us for the reception right after. Maybe one last question. Yeah, the young guy. Because yeah. especially, yeah, from our young fellow. The last one, the last one. That he's go waiting ahead. for quite some time and then... A big problem for you, are you? Big problem. Please. Go ahead. The, the water is very difficult in the desert. The for the camel and uh, it's uh, very impossible to the... We are Italian. <laughs> is that a question or a comment? Yes. <laughs> the question is, is related by agricultural and uh, uh, the, the, the camel. But mine uh, is for you, Professor, very, very quickly. Uh, I'm in Italy um, uh, a vice president of a wholesale uh, agri-food uh, state-owned company. And uh, do you think it is a, um, uh, is could be possible to uh, plan indices for monitor the link between uh, uh, water security and food security. Water monitoring uh, these days are becoming very sophisticated. I mean, you see, you see these things in many countries and, 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 and actually MIT developed a, a good monitor, monitoring systems about seven years ago, I think. And it was taken by companies leading it in, in, in Singapore. And I think they came here and had a chat with many people for these things. So water monitoring for leakage is extremely important. We lose a lot of water in the pipes coming to the houses. And this is another big problem. I mean, uh, I don't know the percentage in this country. Probably my colleagues here would know the percentage of water leakage from the pipes. But I know in the UK, where I, I, I live myself, uh, the water, the pipes are Victorian, old Victorian pipes. The leakage mm. is huge. They ended up building a desalination plant in London where it rains almost every day using RO technology on the Thames for them to produce water to compensate for the water leakage. Mm. 
the water leakage is a big problem. Uh, and and uh, I hope here, I mean, I heard many percentages here about it. But I don't want to say numbers I heard myself here because I'm not sure about them. Uh, it's, it's a big problem. And, and there are advanced technologies for monitoring these things. Can I, just, can I just ask you a question, please? The questioner in the audience, can I just ask you a question? Uh, if that little boy was yours, can you say, well done on having the courage to get up and ask a question? <laughs> and can I also ask you to buy him a chocolate bar tonight and say, well done? <laughs> I, would, I would be very proud. Please, Sophia. Uh, yeah, I, I do have some comments in terms of uh, water security and, and food security because they, they, they are highly connected, as we have been discussing here. And I think it's... it's from different perspectives. Firstly, uh, the agriculture is consuming with 70% of, of the total water. And I think it's looking at fresh water, I think it's 3% of the total water what they have around us. Um, but then many of these areas where we actually have agriculture, um, not only looking in UAE, but looking uh, across the globe, where they're extracting groundwater, they're also using chemicals in terms of the food production that goes down in the groundwater itself. So our technology, very often, we have deployed it in these situations where, where they, have, they can't even drink the groundwater anymore because there's so much chemicals that's gone into it because of food production. And so I think it's really connected to um, together in terms of like how, how much water are we using into agriculture and if we can get that to decrease, but also in terms of how we actually, um, how we actually produce food. Uh, and what impact that has on the overall ecosystem. Um, because what we can see in many markets today is, is that the, the water that we use to drink, we cannot drink it anymore. And that means that people actually have to move away from those areas because they have nothing, they don't have a secure water source. Uh, so I think it's, it's a loop there mm -hmm. that we definitely need to look at. Um, Excellent. All right, thank you very much uh, uh, for an amazing panel discussion today. Uh, Luke, Sophia, Professor, it was really enjoyable. I want to thank our Vice Chancellor for the opening remarks, Your Excellencies for attending, but also interacting in such a nice way uh, with our uh, uh, panelists today. I want to thank the audience uh, um, for really engaging today with our uh, discussion, of course, everybody attending via Zoom. Um, and we're going to have many more discussions in the future about many different other climate topics and we hope to see you also in the future as well. Thank you very much and have a good evening. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.